Hello and welcome to another episode of Oconus, The Contractor's Life. I'm your host, Scott Dresser. My guest on this episode is Mike Morton, a former member of the United States Army, an infantry medic, police swap medic, finally retired after 20 years of service in 2013, and after three years of private security work in the U.S., he began contracting Oconus in Mexico as a police instructor and advisor on a DOS contract. Uh, Mike Morton, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Scott. Great to be here. Well, thank you. I'm really glad you're here. And did I get all that right? Perfect. Yes, right <laughs> on the line. All right. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> all right. That's why I try to keep it as short as possible and let the guests do all that. Uh, so, Mike, with, uh, for the folks that are listening to this, uh, can you go down a, a rundown, a background, on who and what you are, uh, what you did uh, prior to becoming a contractor outside the United States. Yeah, well, I was, uh, you know, I was a police officer for 20 years, and I did police work in Colorado, where I'm from originally for four years, and I moved out to the uh, West Coast and ended up as a, uh, a cop in Vancouver, Washington. And uh, my in my police career. I've been everything from uh, a SWAT team medic to search and rescue, uh, most of it in patrol, um, also as a, uh, a trainer for the whole time, both firearms and defensive tactics, so defensive tactics is really my, my specialty. And I ended up uh, the last few years before I retired as a uh, homicide and sex crimes detective. So that was pretty fun because we just mm. got to go hunt bad guys and kick doors, and it was a blast. We did a lot of good. Wow. <laughs> uh, adrenaline rush? Yeah, yeah, that's my drug of choice. What can <laughs> I say? <laughs> uh, it's funny. Well, I won't go into what you and I were talking about earlier about, about my problem, but uh, <laughs> uh, the guys who know me probably know what it is. Uh, but adrenaline, that's a great one. But sex and uh, what was the other one? Sex crimes and yeah, it, yes, it's sex crimes and homicide. So I was the murder police. Okay. And, um, you know, I was a detective and, and it was really nice working on a major crimes team, you know, in the uh, Portland, Oregon uh, metro area. Hmm. And, um, you know, it was uh, a lot of stuff going on. And, and it really ties together. I mean, I, I, if I had to categorize myself, I'd say I was, uh, you know, an old dope cop because hmm. I, I've got this belief that, you know, dope is part and parcel to everything, whether it's homicide or property crimes or prostitution it's it's the currency you hmm. know so um and I, and i see it both uh you know domestically and internationally okay so and i think i've heard other police types say something similar that typically drugs and or alcohol um are involved in and in, in, in a lot of crimes especially when they go beyond the the, the minor misdemeanor stuff yeah, well, it's 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 a currency, you know. Huh. And uh, the thing is, the you know the Mexican cartels are you know they're everywhere in our country, and so you know that's a, it, it's a currency. And we, you know, with dope, you can buy you can buy weapons, you can buy people, you can buy influence, you can you know you can buy anything you want. Hmm. And so it's untraceable, unlike you know a bank account or anything like that, or using a credit card. So it's. Um, and I mean, you see it, you see it internationally too. I mean, you go back to Vietnam, right? You've got, you know, opium for weapons and influence. It's the same thing in Afghanistan. It was the same thing in Nicaragua with the Contras. And it's the same thing you know, down south where I work. Huh. So when you say currency, I mean, you, it's, it's not a figure of speech. You're, you're literally saying, uh, and clear this up if I'm, if I'm characterizing it incorrectly. But it's similar to what we sometimes see in movies that do a fairly decent job of depicting it, where uh, the person can, what you and I would normally buy with cash or credit cards, they're doing the same thing with drugs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Wow. Wow. Okay. And, and that, from what we've talked about earlier and what you're saying, I'm assuming it's it's far bigger and deeper than maybe a lot to most of us realize. Yeah, it's it's everywhere, and you know, particularly where I work in Mexico, 
the uh, the power and the ability of the money to corrupt is just absolute. I mean, you see it literally from you know the presidential administration down to the guy that sweeps the street and everything in between. It's just it's just part of the culture the way it is. It's it's a narco society, and you know I see that in Venezuela. I see it in other countries as well, Cuba, and so it is what it is. And you just have to uh, you know understand that as you you operate in those areas. Hmm. So, and, and my guess is, and I just thought of this uh, uh, in, in articulated terms, that op, some, at least sometimes, my guess is that some of these people, they may not use the drug themselves, but they realize, hey, I can turn around and cash that in for a significant amount of money. I mean, well, I, I'll give you an I'll give an example how it works. Okay. I went uh, when I was in. Uh, the National Guard, I went to a uh, functional counter drugs op course that was down at Fort Huachuca, Arizona, down by the border. And uh, we had a, a cop come in from uh, Tucson PD, and he had a very interesting story. He explained how he got kind of demoted to property crime, so he was really in the doldrums, and he was uh, doing stolen vehicles, chop shops. And hmm. they, they got some guy they arrested. And uh, he was uh, on a three-strike thing, so he was going to go to prison for a long time. So he flipped, and uh, he was explaining that he goes, you guys just don't have a clue. You think this is about stolen cars? And they said, yeah, yeah, you chop up the cars, you put them back together, and you sell them you know, on the black market. And he goes, no, that's, that's just the front. He goes, we steal the cars and chop them up and make uh, new cars out of them to transport dope north and money south. And it was like, you know, so it's just this big epiphany, like, really? You, did, you know, the, the chop shops are, are just solely, you know, an avenue for the uh, the transport of the drugs and the money. He says, yeah. He goes, yeah, we're here in Arizona. We go to Kansas City, Denver, Boston, you know, and we just drop it off at a parking lot. We leave it there. We collect our money and we go on. And he turned them on to a, a dope transport or pardon me, a money transport that was going south. And it was going across Nogales, which is, you know, right on the uh, Arizona-Mexico border. You actually have a Nogales-Mexico that's, you know, straddles across to the uh, side with the Nogales on the U.S. Hmm. And it was, uh, he says, it's going to be an old beat-up truck. It was like, a, you know, an old 64 Ford or something with um, 55-gallon barrels of used oil in it. And he says, well, one of the barrels has money. It doesn't have oil. So they stop it, and uh, they take the little, uh, you know, uh, it's like a, a dipstick thing that you, you look in there. There was oil in it, but it was only like a like a tit that was about eight inches long was full of oil. So they screwed that out and pry it off, and it had five point five million in cash stuffed in there. Wow! Oh yeah. man! And the guy that was driving it had no idea. He just says, "You know, I, I was just contacted. They're paying me five thousand dollars to drive this over to you know the the." Uh, Walmart over here and just park it and leave it. I don't know anything else, and it was true. Hmm. But uh, he told me that it was stacks of hundreds that was stuffed in there so tight, they had to use a pair of pliers to pull the first one out. Wow. So, you know, he said, oh, we got a really good lesson. Not everything is as, as it seems. You know, I was chasing stolen cars, and stolen cars was, was nothing compared to what was really going on. Huh. Now, w- with what you're talking about, and that's just one example, is that the sort of thing, uh, you know, I used to get in arguments with guys all the time that say, well, you know, with this x-ray machine, with that backscatter, with this and that, we can catch anything if we know what we're looking for. And I've argued, well, maybe, but I'll bet you. Anyway, I won't go into that long sort of detail stuff. But from your experience, based on the example you just gave, if if they were using those kinds of equipment and they and nobody had tipped them off, are those the sorts of things that can get that can go by undetected? Oh yeah. Well, the the thing about it, you know, that example was 1995. So we've got more mm. advanced technology. You know, we've got ground penetrating radar and things like that. But the thing is, if if a person can invent it, a security measure, a person can defeat it. It's it's always been that way, and it always will be that way. Okay. You know, and oftentimes it's low tech that gets it. I mean, you send through, you know, like you get a big, uh, like San Ysidro in California, you know, where they're coming across and there's thousands and thousands of people across the border north into the states every day. And you, you get somebody and you, you give them, you know, something obvious to go grab hold of. 
Yeah, and they, they have a little drug bust, and then everybody else just piles in behind them. Huh. You know, we're over at another crossing with, with the real load, so. Okay, so it's the just like It's just like inventory shrinkage. It's, it's just like in a regular <laughs> supermarket, you know, from from theft. <laughs> right. So there's an awful lot of tactics out there that they use, and, and one that's probably frequently used is the distraction method, right? Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah, most of them, I mean, they don't, they don't come through, you know, like the, uh, the regular checkpoints anyway. You know, they come huh. over or under or, you know, they have other people bribed on the, you know, the U.S. side and you name it, everything you could imagine. Wow. Now you, now just so that people understand, you've been, uh, operating, uh, on contract doing what you're doing down there for about four years now, right? Yeah, I'm on my fourth year and it's actually kind of a stretch to say that because, um, of the COVID this year, uh, all I've done this year in Mexico was was a, a one week, you know, uh, meeting that we had to to kick off the year, and then we all got shut down. So you know, really, huh. it's three years and a week. But um, I am on the fourth year of the contract, and it's expiring here in May of next year. And so I've I've actually have another one set up to go, and uh, I'm kind of waiting on that one's a, a different uh, different company and a different country. So you know, same kind of gig though. So now, is that one of those things that you've set up as a backup plan, or is that a for sure deal? I got recruited. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was a good, okay, that was a, that was a very good gig, and it was a good offer. And it was a, uh, with a guy that I, I worked with before, you know, when I was uh, doing police work in uh, in Colorado, and uh, and those are the best ones, you know, when you get a, a personal recommendation from someone. Right. So. Um, yeah, we're kind of looking forward to that one. Okay, I'll bet you are. Um, and and I won't I won't divulge <clears throat> the, the the general area unless you want to. But I think when you and I were talking about it, I think I mentioned something about a buddy of mine that sent me a message and said, "Well, I guess I won't be going there anytime soon because it had been exposed in some newspaper." I said, "I guess not." <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and you know, there's there's always OPSEC, right? I mean, it's, it's right. Part and parcel of everything, or should be, but um, I work. I work Latin America, you know, all up and down. Uh, I'm a Spanish speaker, so that that's my gig. And um, you know, this contract I'm on right now is through the uh, INL, International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs, which is just everywhere in the world, mm. you know. So um, particularly if you have a have a language skill, I mean, if you can work in Africa, and you know, if you've got French and or Arabic. You know, you're going to be really good to go. Same thing like in Afghanistan. If you've got Pashto or Urdu, you know, it's going to, going to really help out. But we teach all of our classes in, in, in Spanish. So you, you absolutely have to be fluent. So that's been a great, a great thing for me, you know. And, um, so pretty enjoyable. And, and unlike, you know, a lot of the guys, you know, they worked in, say, Afghanistan or Iraq, you know, you've got big, big dollar contracts and companies there. You know, in uh, in Latin America, and, and you know, I'm under. It's actually this thing is under DOS. Uh, this particular one under the Bureau of Diplomatic Security. So that's our mm. chain of command or chain of chain of money, whichever you, way you want to look at it. But um, it's a it's a nice gig. I mean, we're in the classroom, you know, doing the uh, the lectures and presentations, and then you know, we're out in the field doing vehicle takedowns and building searches and small unit movement, that kind of thing, weapons, hand to hand, but, you know, eight hour day, we're in four star hotels, um, weekends off, you know, and uh, with state, pretty much they're not letting us, uh, you know, they're not scheduling anything in a hot area, though we've been in a couple and we had our, our security detail with us. And I wasn't hinked up, but it's just, it can just pop off at, at any time. So, you know, you're rolling around in, a, in an arborist suburban with the dark out windows and you know, everybody's uh, armed to the teeth. But, you know, you get used to that. It's not a, it's not a big deal. But I never really have felt threatened down there hmm. because you know, we, we mind ourselves and we don't do, you know, stupid things. We always, um, you know, manage our routes to and from and keep our head on a swivel. And I, I've never had any kind of problems down there at all so far. Interesting. Now, that <clears throat> I've, I think when you and I talked about it, I mentioned, and I've talked to other guys that have said something similar. Where somebody they knew said, "Hey, how would you like to?" And you go down the list of questions, and ultimately, for me, each time it was like, "Yeah, no, thanks anyway." And the and the reason was is I think as I told you is because we couldn't be armed. 
and uh, as you and I have yeah. talked and, and other guys, there are ways of doing that. But if you get caught, um, that could be more trouble than it's worth. Um, yeah. But but that, but that but you're okay with that. I mean, you feel like for whatever reason, uh, is it just because it hasn't happened, or is it just one of those things that you just you don't think about because you're doing your job? Well, I think I think the security measures they put in place, uh, I feel pretty safe. But uh, just to be frank, you know, we're surreptitiously armed. You know, we work it out with our with our PSD guys. Uh, okay. Because. You know the the bad guys are are very armed up and they're very tactically sound as well. So um, you know that's in Mexico now. You know Central and South America. Hey, yeah, we're we're armed, so it's not a big deal. But uh, just in Mexico, that's the way it goes. And and you can still uh, get armed. There's a lot of hoops to jump through, and your company would have to do it for you. The one I'm with hasn't. And and like I say, I've, I haven't felt unsafe at all. But hmm. we don't. You know, we don't uh, push the issue and, and we take care of ourselves and we don't put ourselves in bad places or, you know, just act foolish. Okay. So now the guys that are providing, that are members of your security detail, the guys that provide the security for you whenever you need it, uh, are are they locals, locally provided? Yeah. Yeah, they're local Mexican cops, sometimes Mexican uh, Marines, and oftentimes we've trained them so we know them personally. Hmm. So okay. They've been vetted, which is which is actually a very important point because uh, a lot of people down there works both sides of the fence. If you take my meaning. Right. Yeah. Well, and I was going to ask you about that because that's that's uh, well, for some of us that was always a concern. Even if they were trusted or vetted, it's kind of like, well, yeah, but every day they got to go back home and they go to this township or that township, and they're around a different influence and. Um, you just never know when they might flip a turn. Is that ever a concern? Has it ever reared its head? You know, I, I think kind of the nuts and bolts of it, Scott, are as soon as we're wheels down, the the local narco chief knows we're there. He knows who we are, knows where we're staying, knows where we're going to be working. But we're not a threat. We're not part of the game. We're not going to change anything for the worse for them. So, you know, we're left alone. Huh. Now, would you call that an uneasy truce or a professional courtesy? I mean, or, or I, they... I, I consider it more of a, a professional courtesy. Yeah. Huh. OK. Wow. That's interesting. Um, so now people would say, well, you're operating, you know, they, they you know, one of the things we talk about is trying to clear up myths and misconceptions and stuff like that. But you mentioned Nogales and some of the other places that that from movies and other sorts of entertainment have a rather uh, seedy reputation. Uh, and, you know, I think I told you once before, my boy wanted to go down there with his girlfriend who wanted to introduce him to family. I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> I said, if you're going on a tour, that's fine. If you're going down there, you know, on a t- where, where tourists go, that's fine. But you don't want to go down there. I mean, um, but you've got you've got to enjoy what you're doing. To, to be in that environment and not be and not be concerned about. It. I mean, it's uh, when you're down there. How are you down there for the whole year? You come home every month, every few you know, months. You know, it's a great gig because um, they have various courses that you teach. Uh, in particular, you know, they have um, sports line supervisor. They have instructor development, course development, internal affairs. And uh, basic police skills, which is what I, I normally teach, so I've taught all of them. And so the longest course is three months. So, you know, you can go three months and come back home for a month or, or stay down there. It depends on, you know, how they need you. Okay. And if they say, hey, you know, uh, I know you just finished six months. We'd like you to stay. And you go, no, nah, I want to go home. You just go home. But if you want to stay, you stay. So it's very, very flexible. It's been it's hmm. wonderful because, I mean, I still have a, an 11-year-old daughter at home. And uh, so, you know, if she's missing daddy, I can yeah, I can come back. Huh. So it's, you know, you, your standard contracts are more like, you know, you're there, you're there, you know, six months or a year. I mean, you may get you get some leave to come back, but you're pretty much there. And this next one that I've got coming up is going to be like that. We're going to be there six, six months before we get a get leave and, and come back and then we'll return, you know, and, and finish the contract. Okay. So it just depends on on the company. I mean. And whether it's, uh, you know, essentially uh, 
hooked up to DOS or DOD or DOJ. You know, they all have their own their own groove and everything. Hmm. You know, to me, Department of State has been a great gig. You know, Department of Defense is is kind of just like being back in the military. You know, hmm. and uh, you're it's you know longer days, more consecutive days. And, you know, you're absolutely expected to have, you know, have your shit together and, and deliver on time and, and uh, take care of everything, which is, which is fine. You know, if you've been in the military, you've been, you've been in police work, you know, that's, uh, you know, you're used to that, so it's not a big deal. Right. But um, this is a, a lot more flexible. So it's been a, it's been a real good introduction hmm. for me you know, to contracting work. Okay. So now the facilities, the places you operate out of and work in, teach in, um, are those all locally provided facilities, or have they been constructed and maintained by American interests? No, they've been uh, 100% police academies. Huh. They're already there. Okay. Okay. So <clears throat> do you – now, what you see down there, what you've experienced, um, is it is it different but the same, or is it different from what you've experienced in the States? As far as policing, yeah, yeah. Well, it's they're they're tore up with respect to them. I mean, I I love the Mexican people. I love Mexico, <clears throat> but they're just so, you know, they don't have a national standard. <clears throat> like in the states, you know, you can take a cop from Washington and a cop from Connecticut, and they go to a, a crime scene and they can process it. They may have some little nuances, but it's not a big deal. Um, you know, they're all going to know how to, how to break down their sidearm and clean it and put it back together and function check it, you know, but that does not exist in Mexico. Hmm. I mean, you've got, uh, even in the same agency, you'll have, you know, a lot of times they have to buy their own equipment. They have to buy their own, you know, a holster and gun belt and, and, uh, you know, ballistic plate if they have one, that kind of thing. And the weapons, you know, I've seen in just the same agency, anything from, uh, you know, a Glock, to a Beretta, to a Jericho, and uh, there's no there's no standard at all. They're not even on the same radio frequencies with the next town down the road. So any kind of interagency or task force stuff, it just doesn't fly. Hmm. So what their desire is, is to have a standard, and they look up to two countries, which were the U.S. and, and Britain, because uh, you were pretty much known around the world as having, you know, the uh, the best – professional police officers in the world hmm. and you know this particular one here is on a uh it's a program called the Merida initiative and it's named after Merida um uh, mexico which is a, a town on the uh, mexican riviera and essentially it's a counter drug thing uh that's been around gosh since 2007 so it's been around a long time and the united states kicks a lot of money to mexico every year for training and equipment, and equipment includes boats, helicopters, small fixed-wing aircraft. Hmm. You know, along with the, the the people show you how to how to maintain them and fly them. Uh, instructors like us, that kind of thing. I mean, like the our our job description for this gig is you know 10 years minimum experience, hmm. and uh, most of the guys have you know substantially more than that. So um, you know, the Mexicans are essentially getting free training and free equipment. So they, they really, they really suck it up. They really take advantage of it, you know, in, in a good way. Um, but it's, it's kind of like, you know, for example, in the States, uh, now it's going to vary a little bit from state to state, but, you know, of the applicants that apply for a, for a police job, one out of a thousand gets accepted. Wow. So there's a vetting process right there. Because they'll have something, they'll have, you know, uh, a drug test or a background, they'll have a domestic violence arrest, whatever that's going to disqualify them, hmm. a psych test, polygraph, whatever. And so then that person's going to go in and they're going to go to the police academy, which is normally, you know, full academy about four months. They graduate that, they're going to come and they're on a, a field training officer, you know, in a car for another three or four months. Then they get out and they're on their own and they're on probation for a year. And any time during that whole process, if they foul up, they can just kick them to the curb. Hmm. So it's a very vetted, um, you know, very vetted process. And in Mexico, it's not like that. I mean, you show up, you apply, you get hired, you go to the police academy for three months, and then they make an instructor. And I'm, it, it's like unbelievable. Hmm. It's unbelievable. 
I had a class that was in Puebla, Mexico, and the academy there is on the top of a mountain, and it's gorgeous because, you know, we kicked in $25 million for it, but they have an entire tactical village. It's just like a town. It's got streets. It's got churches and supermarkets and banks. It's wonderful, right? And um, so I've got a class of, of 21 people, and they're all, they're all patrol officers. Oftentimes you'll get a mix. You'll get admin people or you'll get investigations or whatever. They were all patrol, and I go, okay, so um, – you know, we're going to do uh, emergency vehicle operations. And uh, how many of you guys have a driver's license? And there was two out of 21, and they're a patrol officer. Hmm. And I said, well, did you guys, uh, you know, tell me about your emergency, you know, vehicle training? And they said, we didn't have any. They just tossed us the keys and said, go. <laughs> so you, ha- you haven't got a standard. It's wow. the same thing with firearms. You know, um, we're, we're teaching them, you know, like they – Simple. I mean, you break down a handgun, you break down an AR, which is mostly the uh, the, the long gun there, AR-15s. You'll see a few galils every once in a while. But, you know, an AR is, a, is a, you know, an M4 platform is the easiest thing in the world. You just got the bolt carrier, and that's it, you know, so it's it's very user-friendly. And uh, never seen it, never done it, have no idea. What's this little cotter, uh, cotter pin for? <laughs> Don't lose that, you know. So, uh <laughs> You know, but it's that kind of thing, and, and and you go through initially like, oh, my God, how do these people even operate? And so what you've got, you know, it's like they know somebody. It's it's a political appointee. But so, yeah, I've been an, I've been an instructor for, you know, 15 years. I go, oh, that's great. So – but they have done zero street time. They've never arrested anybody. They've never done a police report. They've never done an interview. Hmm. They've never been in a fight. You know, they've never had to – you know, never been a shootout. So it's just it's, there's no substance to it, and you have generations of that. So it's kind of like we refer to them as paper tigers, you mm. know. And they say, "Well, I've got 20 years of experience." They go, "Well, no, you have one year 20 times." But you know, <laughs> and so you have the you know the diplomatic thing. It's kind of like your child, you know. They they broke something, you want to scream at them, but you can't because you love them. Yeah. So you just try to help them. And, and it's like that, you know. Now you get some people that are really dialed in. Some of their tactical guys are really dialed in. Guys who've been in the uh, the Mexican Marines uh, are very dialed in. But that's the exception and not the rule. Hmm. Okay. So I was going to ask, um, and maybe you you touched upon or even clarified some of it. Um, the, from what you're saying, the people that are uh, wanting to become a part of the police uh, organizations down there. Um, I mean, is do you see it as these? There's a lot of people that want to do this, uh, but there's little support, or is is it that it's that they've got the they've got all the desire, they just don't know how to do it. I mean, because it, it sounds well, like yeah, they just, yeah they don't have they don't have systems in place. You know, and and that's that's the that's how any any organization operates. You got to have a system in place. You know, you show up, um, you you present your orders, you draw your equipment, you draw your weapons, you go to where you're going to sleep. You know, you get a briefing of you know how your day and week and everything is going to be because there's a system in place, and there it's just fly by the seat of your pants. So, no, do you think that's by des- by design somewhere along the line, or do you think that's just the way it is? That's just their culture, and they just need to be shown, taught, and motivated. Yeah, I think they need to be shown, taught, and motivated. And the other thing, they're going through a big um, change here. It's actually been ten years. I mean, things move slow there, but their legal system is based was formerly based on uh, both Spain and France, which is very different from our English system, which is an an accusatorial system. So you're accused, you're innocent until proven guilty, you go through a a court process where evidence is presented, and then uh, a judge and a jury decide what they're going to do with you. But down there, it's essentially, you know, you're you're guilty until proven innocent. So it's it's the opposite. Hmm. So it's the newer cops, it's, it's it's easier because they, they don't even know the prior system, but the old, older guys, you know, they've really struggled with it. And the hmm. thing is, it's like, you know, you go, I said, okay, so just to help me out, you dr- you're driving down the street, you know, in your patrol car, and you see somebody laying here on the ground, and it look like they're dead, and there's a handgun laying on the ground beside them, and nobody else is around. What are you going to do? 
well, it's obvious you're going to go over and, and secure the scene and call for help and, and, you know, all that kind of thing. And they go, oh, we'll just call the we'll call the district attorney. They call the Fiscala, which is there. there and and I, you're just going to drive past it. And I'd go, yeah, well, that's we don't do that. It's kind of like, you know, a, a, a fireman drives away. Well, it's not a fire. I'm not you know, I can't do anything. And so um, <clears throat> they've got this. Uh, no, that's uh, that's investigations or that's the state cops or that's the city cops or that's the military. That's not my job. Hmm. Uh, where here, you know, I mean, even if you're you're off duty and out of uniform, I mean, you take control of the, uh, you know, the situation, and you're the incident commander until you're relieved. You know, that's the incident command system that in the we're, you know, the gospel for us in, hmm. in the U.S. And so, um, you know, so it's been a real challenge for them, and they're kind of like, well, God, we got to do everything. And yeah, it's kind of the deal, man. You know? <laughs> So are they taking to it? I mean, are, are, they, are they wanting and desiring to do that, or are they just kind of going along with it? You know, initially they just kind of went along with it, and were very bullheaded. But um, the last few years they've been you know, wonderful, and they, they really love having us there, and they're very appreciative, you know. And um, and that's that cultural aspect of it, too. And I, and I just tell them, I said, hey, listen, guys, I'm from Colorado. Colorado used to be Mexico, and before that it was New Spain. Hmm. You know, and uh, I, yeah, I've got more years on you experience, but we're all the same. We call it the Sangre Azul. We're, we're all the blue blood. We're walking up the same mountain on the same trail. I'm just ahead of you a little bit. So, you know, I'm just here to help you and, and uh, you know, give you what I can. And it's very much appreciated when you, you kind of come off as, a, you know, humble and like that. So, so what do you – yeah. So what do you think has been the driving change or motivator in the past few years that that's that started that change that you're talking about? You know, it's a couple of things. One, really just like in the States, you know, police work is, is a, a fairly easy blue collar job that pays OK to get into. Now, recent events with, you know, the Antifa and stuff, you know, has blown all that out of the water. People are leaving and retiring in droves and with good reason. Mm -hmm. But prior to that, you know, uh, cops, firemen, you know, that was that was your good, solid, you know, civil service blue collar work. And uh, so that's still, you know, there's a, an element of that in Mexico. But the other is that uh, the last three years since I've been working, it's been extremely violent down there, extremely mm -hmm. violent. And so I think, you know, people are deciding, you know, I got to be on one side or the other, or I'm going to be caught in the crossfire. And uh, and it's like that. I mean, it, you know, it's kind of like, man, this is a cool, this is great, you know. And there's all kinds of these tourist things, but at the same time, you know, you could be shooting the breeze with you with your buddies and hear small arms fire in the back, you know, or see people hanging from a bridge. And it, it's just the way it goes. You know, it, it's. Hmm. Um, thinking wow you know this place they're they're losing control of it and they are hmm. which is why they're they're uh, very amenable to the, the help from the u.s you know when we had a couple of years ago when they had a, an election you know they elected a, a socialist president and we were all really worried about that they were just going to you know cut this program and boot us out and and just go to a full unabated you know open to the world narco state which they de facto are you know hmm. with respect to the mexican people but um yeah it's just the way it goes so um you know but the uh i'd say the foot soldiers you know the guys that are on the ground that are actually doing the work they're very appreciative of the training and uh they they put out you know they really try hmm. so <clears throat> i gotta ask you because we used to see where where i'm going with this we used to talk about it and i used to at least i used to see it and i'm sure other guys did too and i'm assuming you're seeing something similar down there. So I got to ask you, is it what you're seeing, what you saw some years ago and what you're seeing now, do you think it was driven by uh, corrupt politicians and, and, and the big narco businesses scaring the people into compliance? And at some point, maybe they thought, well, we've got a friend with the U.S., um, so we're going to stand up. We don't like this. We never did. Now's our chance. I mean, is is that what we're seeing, or is there something else going on? Yeah, I think they're I think they're trying. I kind of look at it as as a kind of an evolution. Hmm. So, for example, um, I I live in Colombia, so I don't live in the states. And you know, 25 years uh, ago here, you know, you had Pablo Escobar and, and you had you know the cartels, and which you know when people think of Colombia, that's what they they think of, and it's you know that's uh, old times. It's it's changed since then. Hmm. 
uh, or morphed into something else. But essentially, you know, bloody streets are bad for business. And Mexico right now has bloody streets. And so the American, Italian, and Irish mafia in our country, they figured that out. So they kind of went underground. And the same thing with the uh, the Colombians, you know. So they became what I consider real criminals. They became bankers and politicians and insurance mm. magnates and ship people, right? So they do their dirty business and they launder it and they, and they, they keep the streets uh, nice and clean and they go on about their business. Mm. And Mexico hasn't got to that point yet. You know, Mexico was back in the, uh, you know, the 90s. You know, they just uh, essentially mule dope for the Colombians and the Peruvians up to the states, you know, and set up routes. And then, uh, you know, when Colombia decided that uh, they were going to, you know, well, there's a, a couple of things. You know, they, they, they changed into, you know, these legitimate businesses. And also with uh, help from the U.S., they, uh, Colombian military and police just really put a hurting on the narcos. I mean, they just went in essentially with hellebore infantry and just shot everything that moved. And so then they came to the table earnestly. Mm. But, you know, I had some friends back in the army that were in on those operations. They said, man, it was it was rough. You know, they just went in and shot up the jungle and anything that moved because, you know, you haven't got all the, you know, you couldn't do that in the States. I'll put it that way. But it <laughs> was like, OK, we're going to now we're going to talk. And so you know, they got concessions and, you know, they had the uh, these these guerrilla movements that, that are famous in Colombia, you know, the FARC and ELN and, and some of the others. You know, they're supposed to be all these, you know, socialist Marxist people, but all they are, whether they're on the left or on the right, they're just, they're either cartels themselves or they're muscle for cartels. It's all about dope money. Mm. And so, you know, that's the way it is. And and so at least, at least Mexico, you know, they don't try to put themselves, the cartels don't try to put themselves as anything but a criminal organization. <laughs> and, uh, but they, they have so much power and have so much money. I mean, you know, we got our guys that we're teaching down there, and uh, many of them don't even have a high school education. And, uh, you know, they, none of them have the same kind of weapon. They have to buy their own gear. And the bad guys have state-of-the-art equipment. They've got MRAPs, and they've got 50 hmm. cows, and they've got, you know, training from Israeli mercenaries. And so, you know, it's it's a tough gig. So. I just look at like, well, you know, is is anything we're doing going to really make a difference? It will to a few individuals, you know, but on a whole, it's not. You know, that's just the international machinations that go on between countries, in this case, the U.S. and, and Mexico. Hmm. So <clears throat> I got to ask you then, if, if that's uh, I was going to say trend, but maybe that's not the trend. Maybe it is. So if these criminal organizations of various stripes are cleaning up their act, uh, going underground, uh, you know, putting on the wraps, you know, the the show house, the smoke and mirrors. Uh, it, it must, if they're doing that, and that yet they've still got the support of uh, what, uh, for lack of a better term, mainstream uh, criminal organizations. I mean, that's got to make the job a little bit more difficult, doesn't it? I mean, uh, because on the one hand, you can say, well, you can point out and say, this is the guy, that's the organization. They're just hiding behind the law because they're playing this game. I mean, doesn't it make your job more difficult? I mean, uh, you know, I mean, you are know, you... I, I think, you know, if you look at it micro and macro, you know, the micro is I've got a guy that doesn't know how to take a handgun apart. So I, you know, I've got to fix him up. And, uh, you know, the, the bigger picture is, is kind of beyond us. You know, so I'll give an example. Now, Chinese fentanyl is a big deal now coming up from uh, from Mexico. Hmm. But prior to that, you know, it was always Mexican brown and black tar heroin. And so, you know, I was at a, at a meeting and we're with all these, you know, the government officials from Mexico and, and, and the INL people from Mexico and the U.S. And they're talking about how we're, you know, patting ourselves on the back. and We're doing such a great job, but we, we need more money. You know, it's always more money. And uh, so I said, well, wait a second here. You know, you guys have literally a 41,000-acre poppy farm in the state of Guerrero. And so what about that? Well, boy, they didn't like that question. You know, they started squirming around. <laughs> I mean, you can see the thing from outer space, right? <laughs> and I said, what are you doing about that? You know, what's, what's, the, what's the key of black tar going for now? Is it like 300 bucks or has it gone up some? 
And, you know, we're getting the, hey, shut up, you know. And uh, they said, well, we're evaluating that. And I go, well, you've been evaluating that for 15 years. So, you know, you get one side of just like, I'm, I'm down here doing very highly paid mental masturbation, right? And so just drive on and do that, you know, and don't, don't rock the boat. But, um, you know, boy, you're, you're, you're fighting an uphill battle. Huh. You really are. So um, I, I look at it just like if I can – you know, put myself out and train people, and uh, I, I save one or two people, and I already have. I, I'm in contact with, with former students all the time that got saved in a shootout or, or this or that or the other thing, or they made a good arrest, then, um, you know, that's that's good for me. Hmm. So, it, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of people don't like to think about it, but, um, you know, and there's a lot of spin from a lot of uh, corners on on what goes on down there uh, but I mean it's if you've got is it one of those things where we have to say to ourselves kind of like what a lot of us have come around to realizing with the Middle East and other areas you know ultimately it's their fight if they truly want the change if they truly want this to be different they have to do it themselves we can help them but we can't make it happen yeah well that's the thing and and it's one of those kind of deals that you get, you know, these cultural differences and, and very offended that, oh, like the saviors from, you know, the north in this case are coming are, are coming to, to help us. Like we can't, you know, manage our own affairs. But the long and short of it is if you have a violent country like that and you don't have the infrastructure, you're not going to get any foreign investors to come in. They're just they're not going to make any money and it's too dangerous. Right. So they're just stuck this continuous spin because Mexico is a very resource rich country. Mm. It's, it's a beautiful and varied country and, and, and tourism, you know, I heard an economist and I, I actually agree with them after kind of looking into it. He said, essentially the economy of Mexico is 25% tourism, 25%, you know, petroleum, oil, and gas, 25% dope and 25% uh, remises, which is money that people send back from the States. Mm. So if, you, for example, if the U.S. government or whatever entity started taxing that money that people are living in the states legally or illegally are sending back home, you crashed the entire Mexican economy. Hmm. If you really crushed, you know, the dope trade, you would crush the Mexican economy. Huh. So, you know, it's it's very tenuous. Okay. So, you know, I remember it's interesting when you were saying that. Uh, Something came to mind. I remember, I want to say it was 2010. Uh, I remember thinking one time out there in Afghanistan, looking around, um, a quiet sunny afternoon, and I, <laughs> I know guys say, "Don't say that." You know, why is it so quiet today? Uh, but I remember looking around and going, "Man, this." I don't know, 15, 20 minutes of just looking around at the, at the topography. I thought, "God, this is a gorgeously rugged environment. This would be a tourist haven." I mean come here for all the outdoor activities if they could just get rid of the terrorism and the war. Uh, and it sounds like you're saying something similar down there in Mexico, but it's so embedded and so ingrained, it probably will never happen. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's tough. And, and like I've got, you know, one of my, my fellow instructors, he, he just says, he goes, we could come back 10,000 years from now and, and go to Mexico and he goes, and they may be wearing spacesuits, but it's going to be the same old stuff. So, <laughs> wow. Which is a, quite a level of frustration, but he's been down there for like a long, he's been down there like 10, 11 years. And so, uh, uh, you know, it's huh. one of those kind of things. Right. So, so, you know, you, you talked earlier, you mentioned something earlier about the experience and I was going to ask you, uh, but you had already answered it, but you know, for people that, um, you know, that have thought about or want would, like to say work down in Mexico, south of the border, Central America, South America. Um, from your experience and from what you've you you know, uh, what types of experiences, what type of skills, knowledge do people should people have if they're going to seriously entertain doing something like that? What do they need if you know, so, so they're not just wasting their time or or the employer's time? Yeah. Well, you know, the uh, the work in Mexico right now is – this is the big gig, you know, it's the Cyanel gig, and it's all training. And now training, you could be you could be a pilot, you know, you could be, uh, you know, someone who drive, knows how to drive a boat. Like, so you get 
guys that used to be port security in the Coast Guard, they can come down and, and get good gigs in hmm. um, Mexico and also Central America. But um, normally they're looking for kind of tenured guys. I mean, tenured being 10 years minimum. And then you got to go, you know, uh, get your clearance as well. So um, that's kind of tough. You know, my, my suggestion would be for, because there's a lot of guys that are, you know, they're getting out of the service and, you know, say they got three or four years or, or a bit more and, and they're coming out. Um, I think static security, mobile security, if they can get it with one of the big companies, would be a great way to start out. And, um, you know, because everybody hears, oh, man, you make so much money. Of course, that's changed since, you know, probably the early 2000s. Hmm. So, you know, we're still we're still pulling six figures. So, you know, it's a good gig. But even if you got to start out, you know, 60 grand doing some guard work and work yourself up and, and get your network going, because this really is a network business, as you well know. And, uh, you know, have a reputation for yourself. You're still earning that money, O'Connor, and you're not going to pay the taxes on it like you would in the U.S. So it goes a lot farther. Hmm. And, uh, and you know, with me, it's great. I mean, I, I live in Colombia, and, and the cost of living here is so, so inexpensive. And I don't pay any taxes on the first $104,000 that I, that I earn, you know, outside the country. So, you know, I, I kind of live like a lesser king down where I'm at. <laughs> but, uh, even in the states, you know, um, if if you're out, you know, 335 days out of the year, you know, you're gonna you're gonna reel the bank pretty good, and especially if you're a young guy. Right. And that would be my advice: is you know, put in your time, put in the long hours, and bank that money, and don't don't go wild because all of a sudden you got money, and you're gonna take your your leave and go over to Europe or Thailand and just blow it all or get yourself in trouble. You know, work <sighs> hard if you you know bank a hundred grand or better, and uh, then you've got a nice calm head to think with and, and see which direction you want to go. Hmm. Okay. So, so uh, if guys don't have the minimum, now when you say 10 years experience, are you talking about a particular industry or a particular type of work? Yeah, that was police work I was referring to. Okay. Okay. You know, and, uh, and, but I'll tell you, you know, I've run into several people that, that, you know, they have, you know, really, it's kind of the minimum, like they've had 10 or 12 years of, uh, of police work. And they started while they were a cop contracting. They would take unpaid leave or paid leave and go run over to, like, you know, Afghanistan for a year and kind of get your chops and everything. Hmm. And it became so so attractive that they just, you know, they bailed out on police work and are contracting full time. Hmm. And so, you know, there's a number of ways to do it. And normally... Military police, you know, doesn't count. They want civilian sworn police. Huh. So uh, that's that's kind of a thing there now. You know, military police, of course, there's other there's other avenues of opportunity, particularly both civilian and former military for for canine handlers. You know, explosives, uh, dope, that kind of thing. That's that's kind of in demand right now. Uh, but I think you know, from around there, the big thing is is all tech stuff. It's like IT security. And that kind of thing, you know, so there's really something for everybody. Um, you know, I'm just an old beat cop, you know, old dope cop. So it's, it's been a good fit for me. Hmm. Okay. So um, I was going to ask you, and I think we got enough time for this is uh, with what, with what you were talking about earlier about uh, the cartels and the drug flow back and forth. Now, have you, with and stuff that's come out in the news in the past few years, uh, do you see things changing for the better or the worse, or staying about the same in terms of the the drug flow and the drug related crime um, across the border, particularly as it applies to the U.S.? I think personally, it's probably going to stay about the same. Hmm. It's going to be about the same. I mean, now there's been some big seizures and stuff, but you, you don't know if that's just fluff for the for the media or not. But when when there's and that's the big that's the big uh, point of contention with the with the Mexicans is like, hey, if it wasn't for the desire, you know, for the market in the states, there would be no market, and they had it's a fair point, you know. So um, yeah, we have to work on it on our our side of the the border as well as far as education and everything. But um, the thing is, those the Mexican cartels—they're international. They're in Asia. They're in Europe. You know, they're in Africa. They're everywhere. Huh. So even if the United States just dried up tomorrow, they're not going to skip a beat. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> wow. That's something to think about. 
okay. So, uh, Mike, uh, man, I would love to go on, and we could, but uh, we're, we're kind of running out of time. So before I forget, though, um, is there a pearl of wisdom, uh, some takeaway, something you would like to leave all these folks with, something to consider um, a, a, as we wrap this up? You know, I would say uh, stay stay real tight, responsible, and clean in your present job, whether it's you know the military or civilian field, and uh, work your network. Just work your network, because um, like you know, I'd mentioned briefly, I've got another gig coming up in Latin America here towards the end of the year, and it was just you know I was recommended and, and I got called up. I didn't have to apply or anything because you know you've got tons and tons of people that are coming fresh out of the military that have, you know, a lot of experience, they have supervisory experience, they have combat experience, they have logistical experience. And uh, what's going to set you apart from all the other people that are like that, that are, you know, 25 or 35 years old, you know? And uh, so I think that, you know, you take every chance you get to educate yourself, look where the fields and demand are at, and uh, and really work your network. Hmm. That's good. That's a good point. Um, and you know, people often say it's not what you know, it's who you know, and uh, that is true. But you still got, but still, you got to know what you're doing, right? I mean, because your network is taking a chance when they refer you, and so they're probably not going to refer you if they don't think you know what you're doing, right? Yeah, and that's the thing. And I don't know this particular gig that I'm on. There, there's we've run into several of the people that you know they're they are they got hired and God knows how they they accomplished that because they they don't meet the minimum standards huh. and a lot of them you know they just you know flat out lie or embellish their accomplishments and stuff and uh, I've got a guy that I I work with all the time and and we joke about it that you know we have on a USB for for anybody who wants to look at it you know that we're inquiring about a job. I mean, we've got our whole police file, we've got our DD-214, we've got our college transcripts, and we've got our references all there. And hmm. the scars if you want to see them. You know, so we're ready to go. And <laughs> um, we've got a lot of people that, that manage just to, frankly, bullshit their way through, and, and they make it in, and then, you know, they manage to stay somehow, and which is, yeah, it's very concerning, but it's also, I can't do anything about it except refuse to work with them. Right. <laughs> right. Wow. You know, Mike, uh, I, you know, I would love to continue this. I mean, uh, we've had a great offline conversation uh, and, and another great one right now. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that you'd be willing to come back and do this again uh, so we can cover down on so much more information that we couldn't do this time around. Oh, yeah, sure. I'd love to, Scott. Great, because I would love to have you back. Um, so for everybody that's listening, I want to thank my, uh, my guest uh, for this show, uh, Mike Morton. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you and a lot of good information. Um, and for the folks that are listening, I would have liked to have covered down on, on so much more, but we're, on, we're out of time. I want to thank you for listening, everybody, uh, to this episode of Oconus, the Contractor's Life. Again, my guest was uh, Mike Morton. So remember to be careful what you wish for. Stay frosty out there. And until next time, keep it real. <laughs>